0: Welcome to episode one, year dot, of It Happened Here, a true crime podcast. My name is Kate Thompson Davey. I'm a journalist based in Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm one of you, a true crime podcast nut. Shout out to all the spooky bitches, junkies, and murderinos. And now, for my first trick, I will be attempting True Crime Inception, aka making my own podcast. This was actually an idea and a dream I shared with a very good friend. We were going to do this together, but for various reasons, she doesn't have the spoons for it right now, and she magnanimously told me to go ahead without her. So maybe one day, if we are really lucky, you might hear the voice of one of the OG spookiest bitches I know. Until then, you, my imaginary audience, are stuck listening to me talk to myself in my curtain fort, probably with the sounds of my dog snoring in the background and Cape Town's wind trying to tear the windows off. Oh, before we get going, one last important thing. I want to make a true crime podcast that centers victims and survivors, that peers into the psychology at play and scratches that crime and grime itch we all sometimes have. But... I don't want to produce gore porn or glorify the criminals we are going to be speaking about. That's a value that I want to place right up front. That and sex workers work, my body my choice, trance and black lives matter, and fuck your feminism if it isn't intersectional. If that doesn't work for you, that's your call. But this is not the podcast you are looking for. I'm sure I will fall short of these values at some point because we are all flawed and unlearning our prejudices. Please do let me know when I go wrong. But also, please be gentle with me. I'm trying my best and it's scary out here on the internet by myself. Okay, on with the crime. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the kidnapping and murder of Lee Matthews. It's the 21st of July, 2004. Elliot Makubela and his nephew Samuel are cutting grass in the open patches of land near the village of Walkerville, South Africa, which is about 30 kilometers south of Johannesburg, sometimes called Joburg or Josie, which is kind of the economic hub of South Africa. Elliot made a living drying and selling this long grass as, as roof thatching. It had been a long day, and they were getting ready to knock off, so they decided to stop by one last spot to essentially scout it for where they were going to start the next day. It was Samuel who first spotted something in the grass, although he didn't know what it was, but as soon as Elliot saw it, he knew it was a body. There in the scrubby felt lay a young woman, naked and lying on her back, her face turned to the side and clearly dead with several gunshot wounds. Now, Elliot doesn't have a phone, and neither does Samuel, so he leaves his nephew at the site to look after, look over this body, and he runs for help. He runs to the nearest main road, and he tries to flag down uh, drivers to get them to call. No one stops for him, and then he runs to the nearest business, and eventually finds someone there to, to call the cops. They didn't know it at the time, but this was the body of Lee Matthews, a... Young pretty student who'd been missing for 12 days, a young woman whose disappearance the whole country, including myself, had been talking about for days. The kidnapping and murder of Lee was a huge story in 2004 in South Africa, and it particularly resonated with me and my friends because Lee was my age. She was born in 1983, like me. She was a student, she was doing her BCOM and her undergrad thing when she was snatched from her campus. She was planning a big bash for her 21st, like we were all doing that year. If we'd been at the same school, we'd have been peers, maybe even friends. But as it was, I was a thousand kilometers away on my own campus when I first learned of Lee, along with the rest of the country, through an appeal from her parents, who had been living this nightmare for a week. They had turned to the media when the kidnappers suddenly stopped communicating. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Rewind, let's go back a bit. Lee was the youngest of two girls. Her sister is Karen, and her parents are Rob and Sharon. They lived in Fourways, which is a suburb in the north of Johannesburg. Lee was a student at a private university in the city. She had the same bright blonde hair as her mum, but her face shape was more like her dad. She was described by her friends as thoughtful, kind and introverted. Lee had just turned 21 on the 8th of July. The celebrations had begun that Thursday, which which was her actual birthday. Uh, Her family surprised her with this beautiful tanzanite ring. They also had dinner out as a family on that night and chatted about the big bash that she was planning, which was going to be Saturday the 10th. It was a Pirates of the Caribbean-themed party, which is just so of 2004 for me, and she'd been meticulously planning this for a while. But Friday morning, 9 July, the day after her birthday, the day before her party, she went off to classes as usual. When she got there, she discovered she still had her mom's credit card on her from the dinner the night before. So she rang her mum, Sharon, and made a plan to meet in the parking lot of the college at around 10am to give it back to her. Her mum pulled up at the school as planned, but the arranged time came and went, without Lee showing. And Sharon wasn't able to reach her on the phone either. She couldn't spot her car in the parking lot. There are differing reports about how exactly the next few hours played out. Some sources say Lee wasn't answering her cell, and it was this that set off alarm bells for Sharon. Others say her phone was off until the kidnapper turned it back on and called her mom. Some of the news reports say Sharon drove to her husband's office. Others say she called him. As a journalist, getting these details right is very important to me. So when something isn't clear from the reporting, like this instance, I'm just going to mention it, because we don't pretend to know everything here. Oh, and I will obviously provide a list of sources for this podcast in the show notes. Okay, we had to take a brief break for the garbage um, guys to drive past because this is a professional podcast like that. Anywho, what was I saying? So, who phoned who aside, eventually, on the other end of the line, was male voice, not their daughters. This man said that he had taken Lee and he demanded 300,000 rand or he'd kill her. He also told Sharon and Rob that he was Libyan for some reason, and that he'd done this before. He told them not to go to the cops, and he briefly puts Lee on the phone to provide proof of life. I'm not sure if I'm of a particular sceptical bent, but the fact that he mentions those two things, Libyan and I've done this before, would make me think, personally, that neither are true. Anyway, I'm sure that Rob and Sharon were not thinking about that. They had just been given some of the most devastating and frankly unlikely and surprising news possible. Rob gets in touch with a private investigation firm uh, and meets up with a PI and explains the situation. This guy, to his credit I think, advises Rob to get hold of the cops anyway. In combination, they start making a plan, including telling the kidnapper that they couldn't get all the money, but would pay in part. They don't really ever provide strategy thinking behind this idea, but nonetheless, this is the plan that they come up with. So this is the afternoon of Friday 9 July. There are numerous calls from the kidnapper during the day, and Rob is advised on his end to play along and set up a money drop, which he does, agreeing to rendezvous on the side of the road on a highway flyover south of Joburg there's some back and forth about having the police come along on this drop-off and I've read that he settled for the cop hiding in the car but eventually decides that the risk of them being seen is too high and he asks them to get out and he ends up alone on that road when someone comes out of the darkness and tells him to drop the cash out of the car window and drive. Rob says he did catch a quick glimpse of the money being collected but isn't able to offer the police a description. It was too dark And the figure disappears into the night again. Rob drives off. He doesn't want to go home because he thinks any second now he's going to get instructions on where to go fetch his daughter. He's just driving in circles, waiting on that call. But he waits, and he waits. The call to collect his baby girl never comes. The kidnapper never calls again. This fucking nightmare, which I can barely fathom, has, until this point been a rather private tragedy but with no comms from the kidnapper and no clue what to do next Rob and Sharon decide they need to appeal for help through the media. They want to put an appeal out to the kidnappers themselves and for the general public to help to look for her to come forward if they know anything. The cops on their end were kicking into higher gear too. They triangulated the position of Lee's phone during those hours, remember this is uh, 2004, so there's no find my iPhone function or whatever, there's not even iPhones yet, but they trace the phone to Walkerville. They send in helicopters, police and police dogs to search the area, but eventually they still come home empty handed. Almost two agonizing weeks passed by before Elliot and Samuel found Lee's body in that field, and the kidnapping sadly became a murder case. The chance for rescue and a happy ending has passed, but the investigation is ramping up, with a task force going from some 10 or 15 policemen to around 150. We also know that a number of private security companies offered their help. A tiny note for the international listener. South Africa, my beloved home country, has a violent crime problem. There are lots of contributing factors, which we will probably get into in future episodes, But one of the effects of this is that there is a huge private security industry here. A lot of very good cops are actually drawn out of the police service into private security by the promise of better wages. They are frankly better resourced than the police, which causes all kinds of problems in who can access help. I, I wrote a story about this for the Financial Mail a few years ago. This was in 2018, and at the time, The size of our private armed response workforce was two and a half times that of the number of people employed by the South African Police Service. I also read at the time that reportedly South Africans spend some 55 billion rand on private security in a year. Anyway, I digress. That's just for international listeners. Again, imaginary international listeners and some context about the society in which this is all unfolding. Let's go back to where Lee was found, because the site was able to offer the investigators some more information than they had previously been working with. Lee's body was dumped in a patch of open ground near a highway, as I said. She had been shot four times. We know she was dumped there and not killed there because of the lack of blood, and also how the shell casings were found under and next to her body. We also know that she was stripped naked, but there was no apparent sign of sexual assault. The body showed signs of having been frozen, specifically freezer burn, on her extremities, her hands and and feet, and there was limited decomposition. I'm going to take another aside here, because I can't resist a segue. We know that the grass here is tall and dry. That's why Elliot was there, cutting the thatching. Remember, July in the southern hemisphere is winter, and the winters in this area that we call the High felt are typically very dry. It's common to see small fires on the overgrown patches of empty land around there, especially next to the road, where all it takes is a cigarette butt discarded out of a car window to start a fire. I think, and I'm totally surmising here, that maybe the killer or killers had left her body there, thinking that it might be a while before it was found, and maybe evidence would be destroyed by bushfire. There's actually indication that the killer started a fire to destroy evidence, but that's something we only find out later, and it isn't a confirmed fact. And that's because the man who eventually faces charges for this crime is, let's say, less than forthcoming. And his various versions of what went down change time and time again, leaving these big gaps in the story. Six weeks on from finding her, with hundreds of tips chased down, but leading only to dead ends, The task force was downsized and the media attention on the case was starting to wane. In late August, the case was given to a guy called Pete Bailafelt. He was quite senior in the police force and he had made a name for himself investigating tough cases. He took the case back to basics, focusing on the last place we knew Lee had been, which was her college parking lot. I think I mentioned this was a very small Private college in Sandton, a wealthy suburb of Johannesburg, and the campus was access controlled, meaning it was fenced and gated, and in order to get access, you had to sign in or have a student card. Baila Felt decided to run down all the names and check alibis. He also reread all the early statements from Robin Sharon, and he spotted this weird little detail. Remember that the kidnapper had told Robin Sharon that he was Libyan for some reason and he was described as having a fairly neutral accent. But when Rob missed the turn-off for the cash drop, the kidnapper had called him and lost his cool. In that moment, this neutral accent slipped, and Rob had said he sounded like he had an Indian accent. Okay, this also kind of requires going down a cultural cul-de-sac, I guess. If you know anything about South Africa, you will know that until 1994, we were racially segregated by law. Like, literally, areas of the country were declared black areas, and others white areas, um, and discrimination was legal, um, and it was all sort of uh, built on this system called apartheid. The legal elements of that hateful discrimination have been deconstructed. But we do still live with a legacy of centuries of segregation. We have what is sometimes called spatial apartheid. This means that although the legal limits on where you can live have been lifted, there are other reasons like heritage and history and community and financial limitations that have kept groups of people concentrated in those historic pockets where the race that they are part of had been consigned to in the past. This is not resolved even now in 2021. And in 2004, we were just a decade out from apartheid and those divisions were pronounced. Sorry, you don't technically need to know this to understand the crime timeline, but I think there is nuance here that fills in the bigger picture. But the shorthand version, not doing justice to the political history, is to say that there was a large settlement of people from India in South Africa for the purposes of indentured labour, and they of course had babies and put down roots, so there is a large segment of the South African population who are of Indian extraction. And like all of us, the community you live with, the area you live in, has an effect on the way you speak. This is what Rob thought he had heard in the kidnapper's voice. A hint of a South African Indian accent. Anyway, Baylor felt he takes this detail along with a register of students. And decides to narrow down to Indian men. Remember it's a small school so this isn't too hard and actually comes up with a very small number of names. And one person stands out to him very quickly and that is someone called Donovan Mudley. He was a student at the college. bailefeld spoke to his previous employer who said they'd fired Donovan on the basis of fraud but hadn't had the evidence to actually charge him with it. Now fraud, obviously, doesn't make a murderer, but it is interesting. Remember I said I was a true crime podcast nut? So here's my recommendation (laughs) for the episode. If you aren't already listening to a podcast called Red Collar, check it out. It's about white collar crime that turns deadly, and I'm really enjoying it. Anyway, so Moodley had this alleged fraud hanging over his head, and a few not-too-successful business ventures under his belt. They look at his phone records and are able to see a significant overlap with the locations of Lee's phone. Bailefeld then starts going around the areas, uh, the hotels in that area, and he comes across Donovan's name at a cheap place called Formula 1. He has used his actual name and identity number and paid for the room with his own card. So this picture is really starting to come together. They look into Mudley's finances, sorry, Donovan Mudley's finances and find that he made several large cash deposits to his bank in the time period that corresponds after the ransom drop. He also paid off some debts, and he casually booked and paid for a holiday and proposed to his girlfriend on that holiday. This ring was later determined to be paid for with the ransom money. In October 2004, they finally feel they have enough to bring charges And they go arrest Donovan at his parents' house where he lives. It's widely reported that the cops came for him. When the cops came for him, he said, What took you so long? I've been expecting you. This may be apocryphal, but what is clear is that he was not surprised when the cops finally showed up and he left them with an impression of coldness. He asked to be given the space to speak to his parents before being taken away. And another thing that is reported widely is that when he told his mother what he was being arrested for, she was shocked and horrified and said she had actually been following Lee's case in the media and praying for her and her family. Unlike his mom, Donovan shows no warmth. He actually confesses right away, but he gives these stories, these various attempts to minimize his culpability including making up a story about three imaginary drug dealers. He remains this calm, dead-eyed creep in court and his appeals too. What we now know about that Friday morning is that Lee encountered Donovan on campus and he asked her for a lift. Lee was, I think I've already said, quite reserved, and introvert, cautious by nature, so it is interesting to me that she gave him that lift because her friend said, when his name was released, that they weren't friends. It is later claimed by Baylorfeld that they were, in fact, acquaintances, and that there had been at least one phone call made between the two of them. But it's clear that they weren't super close, and that um, acquaintance was probably based just on proximity of being on that same campus. Anyway, she does, she gives him a lift, and he pulls a gun on her in her car, his 9mm Taurus pistol. He tells her to drive to a nearby park, he ties her up and he puts her in the boot of her own car and he walks back to campus to fetch his car. When I think about the timing of this, I can't help but wonder if he walked right past her mom in that car park when she was trying to reach Lee and starting to panic. And I wonder if Lee was tied up in that boot, listening to her phone ring while her mom was trying to reach her without being able to answer it. We can't know that for sure, but the timing does suggest that there would have been overlap. And I feel like so many of the true crime stories that we hear are characterized by those moments of chance and overlap and coincidence that could have gone another way. So I just mention it because it's something that always stands out to me when I'm researching these kind of stories. Donovan transfers Lee to his car and he drives south towards Walkerville. The prevailing belief is that he actually killed Lee either the same day after she had spoken to her parents or the next day after the money drop when the case blew up and he got scared. This is his version. He, which, it feels a little victim-blamey to me, like he's suggesting her parents fucked it up by going to the media, but I think it was always the plan. He made no attempt that we know of to hide his identity from her, so I think he's cold and manipulative, and tried to claim panic when the jig was up because he didn't want people to think it was all premeditated. We think she was probably in a freezer or cold storage that week, while her kidnapper paid to get his Ducati fixed and bought an engagement ring. In 2005, Donovan was tried for Lee's murder, as well as kidnapping and extortion. He pled guilty to all the charges and was found guilty by the judge, Jurp Labiskachny, who wrote in his judgment that he didn't think Donovan acted alone. This is a point that actually comes up several times, and I'll go into a few more details about it shortly. Anyway, as I said, Donovan was found guilty. He was sentenced to life for the murder, 15 years for kidnapping, and 10 for the extortion charges. He was 25 years old at the time and may be eligible for release at 65 years old, which is, I can't math, uh, 2044, I think. He made a number of appeals, too, in the intervening years, and I'll go through some of those. In the first appeal, he said that he wasn't guilty and had been framed, but he ultimately withdrew this appeal. In 2009, he appealed the sentence in the High Court. The sentence, so not his plea... But how he, how many years he'd been given, and the High Court upheld this. He took it to the Supreme Court of Appeal. They upheld this, and he actually took it all the way to the Constitutional Court, where in 2010 the appeal was unanimously dismissed by a panel of eleven justices. There was also an aborted application for retrial in 2012, which was dismissed. During this case, this epic twat bag of a person not only claimed he was too clever to have done a murder this badly, but he also compared himself to Hitler and Jesus. Yes, really, Jesus. We also know that the version of killing her that he confessed to doesn't fit the evidence, so even when he was caught and convicted, he couldn't give her parents the truth about what had happened to their child. This is a cold fish not nearly as smart as he'd like to think. There have been a few updates in the intervening years. In 2011, for example, police looked to see if they could make a a case against Donovan's best friend. The friend's phone records put him in the same areas as Donovan and Lee. They also seem to think that it was this guy who was at the ransom drop, based on phone records again. The Saturday Star newspaper has a story on this development, written by Henrietta Chaldenes, which I will link in the show notes. And the Saturday Star knows his name, and they put the allegations to him, and report that he refused to answer their questions and slammed down the phone. The same guy, they tell us, was interviewed back in 2004, just after Donovan's arrest, and the article has some juicy quotes from him about how shocked he is by his friend, how he doesn't think he can stay friends with him. I encourage you to read the article. But this man never faces formal charges. Bailafeld names him in his biography, but I'm going to decline to do so here because he doesn't face charges, he doesn't plead in court, and that's sort of following the, the South African media law about naming um, suspects. Bailefeld, as I said, wrote a book. Um, he wrote it in conjunction with a journalist called Hanley Retief, the book's called Bailerfelt, Dossier of a Serial Sleuth. And in this, he, he writes about several of his most high-profile cases, and he makes the claim here that he thinks there were as many as five accomplices to Lee's murder. To date, though, Donovan is the only one who has been tried for the case. Bailerfelt alleges that this might not have been Donovan's first kidnapping, saying that there was evidence of a big influx of cash in his life in January 2004, but he declines, or possibly can't, point to a specific instance of kidnapping that he could be tied to. During her trial, friends and family of Lee wore white ribbons, and they later established a charity in her name. The too-clever Hitler Jesus has gone on to study law in jail and bring various motions to the legal system, which... Some might characterise as nuisance complaints, such as asking for his transfer of jails to be blocked or asking to be kept in a private cell. If Lee had lived, she'd be 37 turning 38. Maybe she'd have kids, or she'd be an aunt to her sister's kids. I think she would probably be climbing the corporate ladder like her father. Lee didn't get to graduate, and she didn't get to dress up in her Pirates of the Caribbean costume. Her family weren't just robbed of the woman that she was then, but also of a future with her. So that is the case of the kidnapping and murder of Lee Matthews and my first ever episode of It Happened Here. If you enjoyed this, please consider subscribing and following It Happened Here on Insta, Twitter and Facebook. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production researched and written by me kate thompson davey oh and don't forget to check out the sources in the show notes